Well, I can be a bit of a germaphobe at times, although I admit I'm very inconsistent with it. Very inconsistent. I was reminded of this the other day as I was with someone who shall remain nameless, and they were eating some hummus and some veggies, and as they were dipping in the hummus, you can probably guess what happened. They took a bite, and then they put it back in. And oh, for the, the selective germaphobe inside of me, I just thought, ew, that's so gross. You can't be double dipping, and I expressed my desire for a change. And they graciously said, okay, I don't have to do that. A little bit later, I found myself eating some salsa, and I realized what a hypocrite I am because I dipped some salsa, took a bite, dipped again, but who cares? Because they're not a germaphobe, it's only me, right? This behavior bothers me, but it doesn't bother them, so it should be okay. And while we joke a little bit about things like this, and I realize my great inconsistencies in my fear of germs at times, and then my relative uh, nonchalant attitude about germs at other times, germs can kill you in the wrong context. And we've seen this even in our own church family. Um, and so it is important for us at the right time and in the right places and in the right settings to be very, very careful what we expose ourselves to, uh, careful to preserve ourselves. So today we're, we're starting a new sermon series and we're going through the book of Jude. It's really just a letter. It's the second to last book of the Bible. But in this letter, Jude, his main purpose, his main goal is to help preserve and protect the people that he's writing to because he realized that there are germs and viruses and things that were creeping into the church spiritually that were far more dangerous than anything that you and I might transmit one to another. Far more dangerous than COVID-19, far more dangerous than cancer, far more dangerous than just double dipping in the hummus. These were things, spiritual falsehoods that would have the potential for people to be misled and to even lose out on that eternal home in heaven. And so Jude addresses his letter very seriously. But I'll admit, it's not often that we spend, ourselves, spend a sermon on Jude or in Jude or, or even turn there for our devotions because there are some parts of Jude that are a little strange sounding to our modern ears. And we'll get into some of those issues a little bit. Sometimes we neglect Jude a little bit, but there was a famous Bible scholar, his name was George Guthrie, and he once wrote about this, this uh, tend, tendency to neglect this small letter. He said, its neglect reflects more the superficiality of this generation than neglects, that neglects it than the irrelevance of its burning message. So he said, in other words, the fact that we're not reading it as much as we could be is not because the contents are bad, but maybe because we're superficial in our reading of Scripture. 
And there's a burning message contained in this short letter, and we're going to dive into it here today. So I invite you to open up your Bibles, or you can find one on your phone. There's even some that are here in the pews. We're going to the end of the Bible, near Revelation. If you can find Revelation, which is right before the book of Maps and the book of um, Concordance, there's this little book, a little letter called Jude. Some of you might have a song that's going through your mind, but that's not where we're going today, I promise you. So there's really only one chapter, so I may say Jude chapter 1, but really it's just Jude verse 1. Jude verse 1. So we begin there in Jude verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So there are a number of people that the Bible identifies as having the name Jude or Judas. Uh, There was Judas Iscariot, the one that betrayed Jesus. He's probably not the one that wrote this letter, right? There is Judas called not Iscariot, as the gospel author was trying to make sure we didn't confuse him for the traitor. There's Judas of Galilee, mentioned in Acts 5. There's Judas of Damascus in Acts chapter 9. There's Judas named Barsabbas in Acts chapter 15. And there's Judas who was, or Jude, who was the brother of James along with Joseph um, and Simon who were the stepbrothers of Jesus. So out of all those Judes or Judases, how do we determine which Jude is the author here? And there's actually some clues that were given. Um, In verse 17, which we'll get to later on, he talks about the apostles, and he's not identifying himself amongst that group. So anyone on that list who may have been an apostle would be excluded. And obviously, Judas Iscariot, the one that betrayed Jesus, that's not who we're talking about here. And even there's the so-called Gospel of Judas, which I wrote a paper on at one point, That was written much, much later and is so obviously not biblical that there's really no reason to consider uh, something like that as authoritative. So he's probably not an apostle, but verse 1 tells us that he is the brother of whom? James. Okay, now there's really only one James in the Bible that only goes by James and not James the so-and-so or James the brother of so-and-so. And that James, the James that, that has single name status in the Bible, like when we say Kobe, we don't need to say Bryant because we just know we're talking about Kobe, right? So that James was the stepbrother, probably the older stepbrother of Jesus, and James was the first leader of the Christian church in Jerusalem. So when Jude says he is the brother of James, and it's just James all by himself, we know we're probably talking about somebody who was a brother of James, and both of them were brothers of Jesus. Uh, Church tradition affirms this uh, suspicion affirms this idea and tells us, yeah, this is probably the stepbrother of Jesus. Joseph apparently was married before 
He married Mary. His wife probably died. And he had a few sons that we know about. So they would be older brothers to Jesus. In fact, when you read about them in the Gospels, we find that they did not believe in Jesus as Messiah during his ministry. They spoke disapprovingly of him. They spoke as older siblings would down to a younger sibling. They tried to control him. They tried to tell him what to do. And at one point they said, he's out of his mind. They didn't understand the mission and message of Jesus. And so that's probably who is writing this letter. Jude, Judas, stepbrother of Jesus, person who didn't believe in Jesus. But as we'll see, and as you see actually in verse 1, the first part, what does he call himself in relationship to Jesus? The bondservant, or the other translations, the slave. So something has changed, because I don't know about you older siblings, but how likely were you, or, or Jaden, let me ask you this, would you ever say that you are the slave of Sophiana? Definitely not, right? No way would I ever say that. Jenny, my sister, if you're watching, I don't believe I ever heard you say that you were my slave. Although I've kind of felt the other way around at times, but that's just how things go, and I love you so much. So it's not typical for older siblings or, or younger siblings to just say, hey, I'm the servant of this person. I'm the servant of my stepbrother. I'm his slave. But yet, here is Jude, who didn't believe in Jesus as Messiah and God and Lord, and something's changed. Because now he is saying, I am his servant. And actually, in Acts chapter 1, you can see that this transformation happened as soon as Jesus was resurrected, this transformation had already happened or had happened at that time. Something changed. What changed? Jesus popped up out of that grave, alive. He was seen by many. And his brothers, who didn't believe before, now fully believed. The gospel, the good news about Jesus, had the power back then to change a skeptic into a believer, and it has the power today to change and transform lives. Do you believe that? It's so cool to hear people's stories, and they'll say things like this. You wouldn't, you'd never believe how I used to be compared to how I am now. You'd never believe what Jesus did in my life. And I say, no, we believe it. Because Jesus is doing the same work in our lives. I had a friend who was the nicest person in the world. Nicest ever. And she said, you know, I'm not normally like this. This is what Jesus has done in me. And you thought, oh, sure, yeah, right. But no, it's the truth. Jesus has the power to change skeptics and sinners and infidels into people who are humble and following after Jesus.
You'll notice also that he's kind of claiming second fiddle even to his brother, James. He doesn't say, and I am Jude, and there's a guy named James, and he's my brother. No, he says, I'm Jude, brother of so-and-so. They don't even mention their connection to Jesus. And you'll see in the book of James, written by James, brother of Jesus, James doesn't claim to be the brother of Jesus either. They were humble in their attitude. They'd been changed by God, and they didn't want to try to take advantage of that family connection. So they just said, hey, here I am. Here's my brother. You may know him. His name's James. And I'm a slave. I am a bondservant of Jesus. Now let's talk for a minute about this servant-slave idea because especially today, we have some really different pictures of what we, when we say slavery, that's, that's not something we want to think about. We want to try to, to amend for our past errors, and we want to try to move forward uh, from that. But when the New Testament authors use the word slave or servant in reference to serving Jesus, it's only in the best sense. Uh, it, it's not, Jesus is not there with a whip cracking it on us. He's not there forcing us to follow him against our will. When Paul and when Jude and when others say, I am the servant of Jesus, that's saying, he is my Lord, he saved my life, and I want to lovingly, freely serve him forever. But you know, we really don't have a choice of whether or not we're a servant. Because if we don't serve Jesus, we're serving the devil. If we're not serving righteousness, automatically by default, we're serving sin. Let me show you something real quick. Keep your finger in James, but go to, go to Romans. Romans is a little further to the left in your Bible. Romans chapter 6. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but this is too important of a concept not to, not to just highlight briefly. A, a brief excursus, a little adventure before we get back to Jude 1. Romans chapter 6, look at verse 15. Romans chapter 6, verse 15. The Bible there says, What then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. There was this idea that because we've been saved by grace, that you can just sin like the devil and that makes no difference. Paul says, no way, no way. That's not how it works here, buddy. That's not how it works. And then he explains why. He says in verse 16, do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey? You are that one slaves to whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? He said, basically, you're either going to be a slave to Jesus or a slave to to sin. If you're a servant, if you lovingly follow after Jesus, it leads to a better life. Eternal life and a better life now. But if you're a slave or a servant to sin, it leads to death. You, you can't be just neutral. There's no Switzerland in this spiritual choice. Look down at verse 20. For when, you were slaves, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, when you were just sinning, just out in the world doing whatever you wanted, 
You didn't worry about what the law said. You didn't worry about being a, a good or a righteous person in a moral sense, biblically. But then he says this, verse 21, what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? In other words, think about the results of your decisions when you used to live like that. How proud are you of those choices now that you've come out of those things? Are you proud of the decisions you made when you were living in sin? Obviously, we can't change our past. We are who we are, and we can use our past to be a blessing to others in the future. But Paul says, no, when you look back on those foolish things that you did, it, you're not proud of those things. You're not proud of the ripple effects, the consequences that you're still dealing with today. Verse 22, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves to God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Now that you're choosing to walk on God's path, your fruit, the results of your decisions are good things in your life. Sure, there's going to be bad that's going to try to get at you, but the fruit are positive things. And then he, sa he says, everlasting life. You get to live forever. And it's in that context that he says, for the wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you can either serve sin and reap death and reap the consequences. Maybe fun for a while, but it catches up with you in the end. Or you can serve Jesus, whose, whose burden is easy and his yoke is light. The rewards now are life that you don't have to be ashamed of a character that's growing and becoming more like him, an everlasting life in the future. So going back to James. James 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. He says from the very beginning, I've made up my choice. I made up my mind. I used to serve sin, but now... I'm serving my younger stepbrother who happens to be the Lord. How crazy is that? Okay, that's the first half of the verse. Who's the letter to? To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Jude likes to do things in threes, and we'll see this. Likes to put things in threes, and maybe there's a spiritual reason, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or maybe that just was his style. To those who are called. Who are called? All are called. All of us are called to salvation. Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. Not because God doesn't want to choose everybody, but few people allow themselves to be chosen in the end. God's calling all of us. Isn't it nice when you get picked for things that are good? <laughs> Young man, come up to the front and, and do the math on the chalkboard. <laughs> That's not what we usually like, unless you know the answer and you're, you're just excited. But when you're in school and you're standing there at the playground and everybody lines up, okay, we're going to have first captain and second captain, 
And um, I'm going to pick uh, you. It feels so good to be picked. What, me? You and you. It feels really good to be chosen, to be called. God has called all of us. And the crazy thing is, God knows us better than we know ourselves. And yet he still has called us. Before we could even do the sins that would put him on the cross, he called us. Before the foundation of the world, called us. And then my Bible in the New King James says sanctified, but probably a better translation is the loved ones. We have been loved by God. There never was a time when God didn't love you. We talked about this in previous sermons. God has always been loving you. So he called you in the past. He's loving you in the present, and he loved you in the past too. And then what's that final word there? And he wants to keep us or preserve us in Jesus Christ. He picked us, loved us, and then wanted to preserve us. Right? It's like those peaches. Not sponsored by Smith Ranch, but maybe I should be. They pick those things. Oh, and they pick them ripe. They don't pick them green to let them be shipped halfway around the world. No, they pick them pretty well ready to eat. And they ripe them up a little bit. Uh, and we love them. And then we want to preserve them. And so that's the audience. All of us, any of us. We're all called. We're all loved. And God wants to preserve all of us. How? In Jesus Christ. We aren't preserved in our own strength. We try to set New Year's resolutions. We try to say, I'm never going to do that again. I'm going to be a new person. Even after we're baptized, we say, I'm baptized. I'm clean. I'm going to keep myself. But you can't keep yourself. Only Jesus can keep you. Naturally, we want to go back to our addictions. We want to wallow in our sins. Naturally, we want to go back to the things that we know we will regret later on. The only way to be preserved and kept is to be in Jesus Christ. That's why you're here today. That's why you're listening from home because activities like this are one of many that help preserve us. But of course we need that daily walk, that daily time with Jesus throughout our day saying, Jesus, I'm here. I want to serve you today. I want to be preserved by you today. I can't do it on my own. Jude, half-brother of Jesus, recognized these wonderful truths. And so he addressed his letter, not to a specific church, but to a general Christian audience, an early Christian audience. And then in verse 2, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. What again? Three things. It just rolled off of his tongue or off of his writing utensil so well. Mercy, this was a guy who had experienced mercy in his life. He didn't believe in his brother. He said disparaging things, things against his brother, but he'd experienced the mercy, the mercy that his brother Jesus provided. He'd been a man with less peace in his life, but he got to know the Prince of Peace, his half-brother, and he wanted others to have that same peace. 
and he'd experienced the love of the one who is love. And he wanted love not just to be added to us, but for love to be multiplied. Multiplied to each of us. And then we get to the, this was now just the greeting, but now we get into the meat of it here. But actually I would argue that this other part is meat too. But we get into his purpose for writing the letter and we get to verse 3. Verse 3, Beloved, ones who are loved by God, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to all the saints. So Jude actually had another purpose in mind when he wrote the letter. What did he want to write about? According to that verse. He wanted to write about the common salvation, the salvation that, that we all share. You see, we're not saved in different manners. We're all saved by the blood of Jesus. And he wanted to write just a general letter about the goodness and the love and the gospel. But then he became aware of some troubling circumstances in churches that were things that were spreading, viral false teachings that were being spread. And he said, no, 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 no. I have to change the topic. He found himself compelled to write to you, to us, exhorting us. That means he's trying to light a fire underneath of us. The the, the first listeners and by extension us today. He's saying there's something going on and we need to wake up to this, people. I need to stir you to action. I need to motivate you to contend earnestly for the faith. He's not advocating for the people to go out and beat people up or to fight for the faith. He's saying this is a spiritual battle. There are false teachings that are being spread amongst the churches and you need to wrestle for the truth in your own life and in your congregations because your life depends on it. Jesus is seeking to preserve you, but there are elements creeping in that are going to spoil the whole lot if we don't do something about it. Contend earnestly for the faith. What's the faith? That's the the message, the good news about Jesus, the gospel that they had received. Delivered once for all to the saints. Then we get a a certain explanation here. Verse 4, For certain men have crept in unnoticed. Can you picture it? Guys sneaking in. (laughs) Not quite like that. But he's saying there are people without our realizing it that are infiltrating our church. Maybe they're friends of yours. Maybe they're people that you know, but they're starting to do harm. I find that most of the time the attacks that cause us to fall down are not from the outside, but they're from the inside. Right? Like, when we sin, it's usually not because somebody is literally forcing us to do it. It's because in our own heart, we've chosen to do that. The greatest battle is not the enemy, but it's the inner me. The the me that's not surrendered to the Lord. 
that's not saying, okay, Jesus, I want to do it your way. I'm your servant. Or in your family. It's usually not somebody like your next door neighbor that comes in and says, hey, I'm going to disrupt your family. I'm going to cause chaos and, and all sorts of arguments. It's usually you guys. It's us from within. The greatest and most dangerous things happen often from within, not some external battle. And, and when we talk about the Antichrist, sometimes people picture it as this secular leader that's going to come in and try and destroy all this stuff. But the Bible paints a different picture. It's someone from within Christianity that leads people away from the truth. And Jude recognized it was happening. He saw probably the early signs of Gnosticism and Docetism and some of these heresies that we may talk more about in future weeks. But he saw dangerous theology creeping in, and so he says, we've got to stop it, folks. We've got to wake up. We've got to preserve the faith that has been given to us. They've crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Not they themselves individually. God doesn't predestine people to various fates. But God long ago said, those who come in and do this kind of thing, this is a bad thing, and there will be consequences. Ungodly men. And what are they doing? Two things are listed here in verse 4. And verse 4 is actually our last verse for the day. What are these ungodly men doing? They're turning the grace of our Lord God into lewdness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. They're saying kind of what Paul was arguing against in Romans 6. These guys were saying, hey, there's grace there's forgiveness, so let's go live like the devil because it doesn't matter. Lewdness, in my Bible, is just a word to describe people living in open sin and they're not ashamed. This was a dangerous teaching. Of course we're saved by grace. Of course Jesus' grace covers us and cleanses us. But Paul and the author here, Jude, he says, no, we can't just... Go about our lives as if nothing matters. It does matter. There is grace when we fall down. But every choice makes a difference. Every choice. We've been called to live freely as people, but we've been called to exercise our freedom in ways that lead to a better life and a better world. And so these teachers were coming in. They were saying, hey, you can do what you want. Body's bad, the spirit's good. They were misunderstanding some, some biblical teachings about humanity. And they were saying, it doesn't matter what you do because God's grace will just cover it. Um, I've heard even to the extreme, preachers have said, because of God's grace, you can take a gun out into the street and you can kill people. It doesn't matter. I mean, who would, who would actually say that? Well, at least one person did. But that's the extreme that this idea can lead to. Grace always leads us to want to be more obedient. Grace leads us to gratitude and saying, thank you so much that my sins are washed away. I want to follow you. I want to live in harmony with what you have. I don't want to do the things that hurt you. We'll talk more about this in days to come. 
They're turning the grace of God into lewdness, and they're denying the only Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ. They were denying Jesus as Lord and God. James and Jude, these stepbrothers of Jesus, if anybody should know about who Jesus was, it would be them. They didn't believe, but what they saw in those three and a half years of ministry, what they saw in the resurrected person of Jesus changed their skeptics' hearts and minds, and they said, no, 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 we can't have anybody denying who Jesus is because we know we didn't believe in the past, but now we believe and we know and we need to follow him. And so he writes this letter to encourage us to contend for the faith, to wrestle, to stay faithful to what was given to us. Those of us that have been called by God, all of us, loved by him and preserved now and into the future. So as we close today, as we set up for next week, pick it up next week in verse 5, I just want to ask you a simple question. If Jude were alive today, if Jude were living right now and he wrote you a letter, listeners at home, if Jude wrote you a letter, what would he say to you in that letter? Would there be things that he'd be worried about that might endanger the purity of the gospel in your heart and life? Are there areas that he would encourage you to contend for your faith? To stay preserved in Jesus? What would Jude say to you if he wrote you a letter? Is there any area of your life that he might encourage you to return back to faithfulness in? So my simple question today is this. Are you willing to think and pray on that this afternoon? Are you willing? I want to give it a try. See if the Holy Spirit will bring things to our hearts and minds that we today can ask God to forgive us of and ask God to improve our faithfulness to him in this week so that we may be preserved in Jesus today and in the future as we await his return. Let's bow our heads. Loving Heavenly Father, I am so grateful that, that you love us. You love me, even though you know me. You know everything about me, but you love me. By your blood and grace, we are cleansed and forgiven. And Jesus, we want you to preserve us. There will be attacks this week. There will be challenges. We'll be tempted to go back to our old ways this week. But Jesus, we ask you to strengthen us. Send the Holy Spirit to empower us so that we can be more like you. And Lord, when you come back, we just want to be the people who say, this is our God, we've waited for him, and now he'll save us. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, have a happy Sabbath. Our ushers will be dismissing from the rear. Remember just to drop off your tithes and offerings if you have any, and um, go outside. If you want to congregate outside, you can, but let's try to continue to maintain our distancing for the love and the health of everyone. God bless you and happy Sabbath.